G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is our finals preview edition. What a fantastic week this is in a footy context. The first week of finals, four massive finals, two knockout, two qualifying finals, all in the space of about 72 hours. It's certainly, I think it's my favourite football Weekend of the year. Is it this man's favourite weekend of the year? My footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Finey? I'm well. Yeah, it certainly helps when your team's involved, but it is a great weekend of the year. I mean, a final eight, love it or otherwise, does give you a first week of the finals where the eight best teams square off against each other, and that should make for some really good football. More on that later, but... The other good thing is that, and I don't know what the weather's like elsewhere, but here in Melbourne, where we're locked down, boy, it's suddenly spring has sprung. And I was just thinking, when you have a look at the forecast, what a pity that we don't have football over the next few days in Melbourne, because it would have been ideal conditions for football, uh, especially Saturday, I think, is supposed to be you know, mid-twenties and sunny and would have been a beautiful afternoon at the MCG for some afternoon footy. I must admit, I've completely lost track of time. I've just reminded myself as you've spoken that it is now October. (laughs) It's the 1st of October. For some reason, mentally, I think I'm still very much in mid-July and I actually instinctively turned the heater on this morning. I probably should go and turn it off, but that's just one of the consequences of having been locked down for about the last 500 years. However, we've still got the footy to enjoy and it's going to be a great few days of finals action. I'll tell you what else I can't wait to do, Finey. When we're all released from this prison, it is to head straight down to a certain establishment in Albert Park. Straight to 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park for a beautiful Andrews hamburger that has not been affected in terms of quality by the lockdown, that I can assure you. So the same beautiful burgers, same wonderful chips and same great sort of around the corner, old corner store service, which I think is very important. Uh, You know, we talk about the product, but also the way it's delivered to you is by regular faces of people that, certainly appreciate the one-on-one contact that will again become part of our lives and when you're thinking about that one-on-one service the same applies for a great rebuild of your homes and in a similar part of Melbourne the inner southeast Melbourne suburbs think no further if you're renovating rebuilding or maximizing on your block West Point Properties Nick Spartel so there's a Quinella that is bound to pay big dividends during the spring carnival Wonderful sponsors, both. Uh, I, I do love that old corner store feel. I, I reckon the first time I get to Andrews, I'm going to 
somehow find a whole stack of one and two cent coins and I'm going to look out for a little local milk bar. I'm going to walk in and I'm going to order about five bucks worth of milk bottles and musk sticks and snakes and all those other lollies you used to buy. But uh, inevitably you'd walk into the store just as a little kid in front of you was buying about 10 bucks worth and spending about half an hour doing it. Remember those days? Yeah, they were amazing those days. The patience of those people behind the counter as we sorted through our 20 cents worth of lollies. Not like today where you've got to buy, you've got to buy two packets of something down at 7-Eleven or at the service station. You're going to spend $7 to get a, a, a Pascal Jube. I prefer the old days, Roko. Yeah, I definitely do too. If I've got any money left over, I'm going to buy a uh, packet of Scanlon's footy cards with the picture of the 1972 grand final on the back. Who says we live in the past? We're not going to live in the past anymore because we've got four great finals and plenty of footy news around. Let's talk about that right now. On Footyology Newsfeed. All right, well, we're long used to it now, uh, at least a month before the trade period springs into action. We seem to be talking trades incessantly this year, no exception, of course. Finey, uh, plenty of stories of the trade variety. What's been the most important, do you think? Well, sort of confirmation, Zach Williams, GWS, will be going to Carlton on a very beefy deal, 850 900000 a year for... Five seasons, so a big commitment there by Carlton. They're also hot on the hammer still of Adam Sard. And interestingly, Essendon seems to be central to a lot of these speculative discussions at the moment. Orazio Fantasia apparently out the door, either Adelaide or Port Adelaide. Of course, another big talking point is Joe Danaher. Brisbane, Chris Fagan actually denying a great deal of interest in Danaher, but it's still possible that he heads north to Sydney or Brisbane. And even Zach Merritt's name continues to pop up. I guess the big story during the week in terms of trade is Brad Crouch. Of course, Crouch and Stengel um, being caught 5am in the morning with an illicit substance in their car, allegedly cocaine. That doesn't seem to have uh, quelled his suitors. And interestingly enough, there's been a late bid put in by Richmond, apparently. So we know that Geelong is interested in Brad Crouch. There's a bit of crosstown interest in Port Adelaide. And now Richmond's name has been thrown up. And that early morning indiscretion doesn't seem to have affected his price tag. Well, maybe... uh... Maybe Richmond is being thrown up because uh, if you listen to some reports, they might be set to lose a a 32-year-old veteran in Bashahooli back to his original club in Essendon. Got to say, I found that one pretty staggering. If Essendon has any recognition at all of where it's at, you wouldn't be pursuing a 32-year-old, no matter how good his character is and no matter how good a mates he is with Adam Sard, who they're trying to keep. But uh, that one staggered me. Yeah, Essendon have been mentioned in dispatches going for a couple of elder statesmen, not only Basha Hawley, but also Daniel Talia from Adelaide. So 
you wonder where the mindset is. So I would have thought that Essendon would be looking to get into the draft and giving their list a youthful revamp rather than an aged touched-up. Well, uh, a, a cynic would suggest that the mindset is somewhere uh, around the same vicinity that Brad Crouch and Tyson Stengel were the other night. Off their heads. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the other big name being thrown up, and it was thrown up by ex-Bomber champion Matthew Lloyd, is that St Kilda are going to make their number one priority, Tim Taranto. So uh, no doubt that a couple of clubs are looking a little bit vulnerable at the moment. GWS, Essendon, seem to be where the vultures are circling. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? You uh, you target a club that's uh, where there appears to be a degree of player unhappiness and those two clubs in that regard uh, certainly leading the way. Speaking of um, clubs having their issues, uh, North Melbourne, uh, the player exodus has already been pretty dramatic there. Well, not exodus, they've cut a lot, but uh, also cut an assistant coach um, yesterday with Jade Rawlings being told he's out of the picture for next year, despite the fact his brother Brady is now the list manager. And also um, Gary Hocking uh, has lost his assistant coaching gig at Collingwood. And uh, we're going to see a bit more of this yet as the ramifications of the pandemic uh, begin to eat into not only 2020, but uh, what clubs have planned for 2021. Yeah, financial reality is going to have to hit home sooner rather than later. And I guess a lot of clubs are waiting on a final word by the AFL. And they seem to be dragging the chain on this one as to list sizes for 2021, because a lot of decisions ultimately will be made dependent on how many players you can take into the season. So come on, AFL, give us a definitive number. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because the next issue I wanted to talk about was the rather blithe way that a lot of things that are possible for next year get keep getting thrown up. And uh, I couldn't help but notice the other day, Gil McLaughlin, uh, I think at the finals launch up in Brisbane, he spoke to Fox Footy. Um, list sizes were mentioned. There was a sort of offhand suggestion that there may be further rule changes uh, looking at clearing congestion. Um, the 18-minute quarters that apparently now are a very real possibility, they were thrown up. No one's been able to tell me why we are now suddenly going to 18-minute quarters. Is it to play more games, perhaps? Uh, the one that really got on my wick though, Finey, and I have written about this uh, on Footyology today, if you want to have a look, is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but the pre-finals buy, which Gil McLaughlin, again, rather offhandedly, basically said, yes, that's here to stay. Why is it here to stay? Well, the reason cited was that the AFL had done a impromptu poll of 10 of 18 clubs, the 10 being the 10 at the top of the ladder. I don't know why they didn't poll all 18 clubs who presumably at some stage will be playing finals, or maybe not Essendon, but the rest would have aspirations of finals. <laughs> Do you like that backhander? Yeah, um, that was good. And uh, well, he said eight of the 10 were in favour of the pre-finals buy. So I don't like their polling. It doesn't strike me as a particularly rigorous uh, poll size or sample, 
But I look, I, I'd sort of accepted that we may be stuck with it, but surely the ramifications of the pre-finals buy, I think, have been significant enough to warrant a bit further debate and review and discussion. Now, I'll tell you why. Here's two figures that, for me, are pretty uh, compelling proof that the pre-finals buy has been, been a major issue in determining the last four premiers. Uh, here they are. Prior to the introduction of the pre-finals buy in 2016, the previous of the previous 18 preliminary finals, 17 of those 18 preliminary finals were won by teams which had won their qualifying final. That is, they'd played through the season, won the first week of the finals, had a week off, and then played uh, a fatigued opponent and were able to parlay that into a preliminary final win. For me, that's pretty much the way it should be. That's why you finish top four. So 17 out of 18. Since the pre-finals buy came in, we've had eight preliminary finals. Four times in those eight preliminary finals, a qualifying final winner has lost the preliminary final. Is that just coincidence? Well, the numbers seem a bit too lopsided to me to say that's coincidence. Why is it happening? It's happening because sides are having a week off, playing a game, then having another week off. They get to the preliminary final and they are completely out of sync with what they've been doing. They've played one game in a 27 or 28-day period, 29-day period, if you were Collingwood last year. And I think the manner of those defeats has been instructive. So the four qualifying final winners who have lost their preliminaries were both of them in 2016, Geelong and GWS. Richmond, famously, in 2018 against Collingwood and Collingwood last year against GWS. Now, three of those four, Geelong against Sydney in 2016, didn't kick a goal in the first quarter while Sydney rammed on seven, game over. The two infamous 2018 preliminary final, Richmond, a very warm favourite against the Pies. That game was two goals to ten at halftime, game over. Last year, Collingwood against GWS. GWS dominated that game for three quarters before the Pies came flying back, but at three-quarter time, the Pies had kicked just three goals. So three of those four losers have clearly just completely been shot to ribbons in terms of their routine and their preparedness to start a final at 100%. And And Rowan? Yeah. We can throw in last year's preliminary final between Richmond and Geelong because Richmond got off to a very slow start in that game and Geelong at halftime looked every chance to make it into the grand final. Yep, no, really good call. Really good call. I could have cited that one as well. So why does this matter? Well, it matters because it impacts on the integrity of the season. You spend an entire AFL season fighting to get a top four spot. You win your qualifying final. And then increasingly, the evidence appears to be that that actually is a penalty in terms of being ready to take on a preliminary finalist that has played week in, week out, uh, but for that pre-finals buy, which probably hasn't cherry ripe. To me, that's just not good enough. It diminishes the importance of what's gone before. Now, there's my two bobs worth. How do you, sir? 
You know, as you were uh, laying out the facts there and the numbers, 17 out of 18 prior to the buy, four out of four since. Four out of eight since. Four out of eight, half, a 50%, um, 50% strike rate in terms of failure for the qualifying finalists into the winners into the preliminary final. And I'm thinking, is that necessarily a bad thing that that has sort of balanced an imbalance, but then came the numbers that really matter. And I am totally on board with you. In fact, I just wonder whether those clubs polled by the AFL considered this one game in 27, 28, 29 days on the back of a season where you play with seven-day, six-day and five-day breaks is insanity. It just is so out of sync with what is a basic football season. It's wrong. And I think that needs to be shouted from the highest rooftop, Rowan. That is not on. You can't... A team needs to be playing roughly the same... um, in the same mode, in the same break pattern that they have for the whole season. It is not fair to make a team play once in a month and then expect them to come out and play their best footy. Yeah, well, uh, the other thing that gets me about this is the the pretext for the whole thing in the first place. Now, the AFL conveniently doesn't mention this now, but the pre-finals buy was only introduced after Fremantle on two different occasions and North Melbourne fielded half-strength sides in the last home-and-away game with their finals positions locked in. It was a massive overreaction. I I said that at the time, and I only feel it more strongly since. You're talking about one or two or three games in a a normal season, a 198-game home-and-away season. It's called player management. You see that sort of stuff happen in... English soccer, for example, all the time because of their schedule. So in the context of nearly 200 games, what does it matter if in one a side with its position short up is resting half its half its team? So to and count... That, and that tactic doesn't guarantee success? No, it doesn't. Well, it didn't with Fremantle and North Melbourne, did it? They Neither of them won a premiership in the years they did that. Um, and so the counter to do that, to you know, address perceived integrity issues is to introduce a system which has completely turned on its head the record of the top four in going on to win the premiership. That, to me, is a far bigger impact on the integrity of the premiership than what we were dealing with. It's a classic example of cracking a walnut with a sledgehammer. I think they've got it wrong. And, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think the clubs that have said yes have actually thought it through. I really don't. Well, it's unfortunately, the AFL has a habit and Gil McLaughlin, no different to Andrew Demetriou, of getting a, an idea and making sure it happens. Now, we need to be very careful and I don't know what the fans can do. I don't know what keen observers such as yourself can do to guarantee the integrity of the game and make sure that we don't wake up tomorrow. And when I say tomorrow, I mean somewhere down the track and see that what we have ain't what we grew up with and ain't what we want. It, you know, 
um, small steps in the end can amount to a huge change in how the game looks and how it's played. Yeah, well, like I said, uh, you can check out that column at Footyology if you want to look, but uh, I'm red hot on this one and uh, I'm going to continue to be because I think it's had a massive impact. So you should Uh, be. Well done. Another story I wanted to talk about, and uh, it's a bit close to home, this one, Fanny, but uh, some big news on the Essendon front yesterday with the Bombers uh, announcing that Kevin Sheedy, coaching legend, would be assuming a place on the football club board. Um, That had uh, pretty much the impact they were looking for. And I've got to say, uh, I was one of them initially. I thought, well, this is this is a good move. Sheeds is a, a great footy person. He's not short of ideas. Uh, the club is in a world of trouble at the moment. Getting him on the board might keep a few people accountable and uh, he'll certainly have plenty of ideas he can contribute. I think the concern is the uh, seeming subverting of the democratic process. Now, what I'm talking about there is, There were two spots on that board coming up for election in December. The uh, members facing re-election were Sean Wellman, former Premiership player, and Katie Leo, who has been on the board since 2014. What Essendon have done is persuaded Katie to resign, and that place has been filled casually by Kevin Sheedy. He will have to face re-election, as she would have, but of course, being Kevin Sheedy, will be re-elected, as will Sean Wellman. What does that mean? Well, it means that the near dozen, I'm told, candidates who were uh, going to throw their hat in the ring uh, will basically all pull the pin because they know they have no chance of being elected up against uh, a coaching a legend of the game and uh, an Essendon Premiership hero. So I think it smacks of politics, and this is, again a rather unpleasant smell lingers around the Essendon Football Club of deals and wheeling and dealing and appearance being more important than reality. Um, so they will, by doing that, avoid an election. They'll, they'll uh, miss out on any negative publicity that may have accompanied an election, although who's to say it wouldn't have been positive uh, with members finally being given a voice. And gradually over the years, you've seen the balance of that board tip from only a couple of uh, board-appointed directors to effectively now the vast bulk of the directors being board-appointed or basically former football people who are always going to win. So it's sort of shut the membership out. And I think a lot of Essendon members perhaps at the moment aren't quite aware that that is the case. When they think about it, they might see things a bit more negatively uh, in that sense. Having said that, I do think Sheeds contributing from a board perspective is more a positive than a negative. How do you see that one? Uh, sounds like the lunatics are still running the asylum, Rowan, unfortunately. Um, whilst this might placate people from afar, uh, has there really been, as you say, a mechanism of change being made available to disgruntled supporters? I don't think so. So, so unfortunately, the people at the top who seem fairly comfortable with decisions made in terms of transition from Worsfold to Rutten and other decisions that have been made that have seen the club really struggle 
certainly this year, uh, unaffected. Who are, the, who are those names at the top, Rowan? Well, we've got uh, Essendon has a new president now, Paul Brasher, who has replaced Lindsay Tanner. Now, he, uh, I guess the other thing of consequence to Essendon supporters, Paul Brasher recorded an 18-minute speech to members in which he acknowledged several issues, and that seemed to please supporters. He did, in fairness to him, say, well, look, these are just words. We've got to back it up with actions. But that went down well. But Brasher is replacing Lindsay Tanner. Xavier Campbell, of course, is the chief executive. Um, I would think that given that he is responsible for paying Kevin Sheedy a very, very healthy salary in his marketing role with the club, I don't think um, there's going to be too much opposition to Xavier from the new board member. Dan Richardson, formerly of Richmond, is the football manager. The other person there who's position has come under scrutiny recently is Adrian Dodoro. Uh, well, Adrian can uh, basically make some office renovations and set himself up for life there now because the first thing she'd said upon this news yesterday was how much he rates Adrian and uh, he hopes to give him plenty of support along with some mentoring for new coach Ben Rutten who hopefully was asked what he thought of the idea. So as you see, Essendon, I've said this a lot, it's a highly political club. It's the way that politics plays out, which I think a few of us are finding pretty distasteful. The supporters, well, they'll be happy if this is a side that can turn around its fortunes. But given the uh, extent of the player exodus that is looming, uh, given our trade discussions earlier, uh, boy, this is a pretty low point in the Essendon Football Club's history. Obviously, I hope they can turn it around, but I think it's how you go about turning things around, which is just as important. And uh, from the score of uh, integrity and fairness and democratic process, that one doesn't look too good. Watch this space, Roko. Watch this space. Well, look, uh, a lighter-hearted item to finish off, I think, Finey. And uh, there's a piece of much-loved AFL memorabilia which bobbed up in the news the other day. Uh, fill us in on what happened there. Well, we go back to 1991, don't we? And a grand final that was held at Waverley VFL Park because of uh, structural changes to the MCG. And on a day where the Hawks bested the West Coast Eagles, many people remember the pre-game entertainment and the Batmobile. Now, we seem to love... I think Australians just love that sort of... Um, uh, not the... not. We like we like laughing with people, but we prefer laughing at. And that's why if most of us had our druthers, every year's pre-game entertainment would be meatloaf singing out the back of the Batmobile. It was cheesy, it was ridiculous, but it became iconic. And apparently uh, the said Batmobile has sat in a garage for many years. There was a bid by Hawthorne fans to purchase it some time ago, but it came up for auction again in the last week or so. And this time, Hawthorne people, headlined by a well-known journo. Have Adam, got their, Adam Collins? Have, yeah, they've got their car for, I think, somewhere north of $20,000, around twenty-five grand. Is that correct? $25,300, yes. Uh, two people involved in this group I know well, actually. Adam Collins, who, of course, is a fantastic 
cricket journalist and uh, done some great podcast stuff over the years. And Mark Hawthorne, ironically enough, who is a former colleague of mine on the age. So they are two people in this group uh, who have pulled resources together to buy the car. What is, uh, what? I haven't got around to what they're actually going to do with it yet, Finey. Do you know what they're going to do with it? Well, look, I did hear that they wanted to put it on display somewhere and I, I don't want to burst their bubble, but apart from Adam and Mark and maybe a few others, I don't know whether too many people are just going to be rushing to see the Batmobile. Maybe, you know, if we had a Smithsonian Institute type place for iconic pits of our Australian culture, maybe, just maybe, there might be a spot for a Batmobile, but I, I prefer the idea. I don't know. Did you, did you used to watch the Brady Bunch? Uh, as little as possible. Right. They had an episode where they were collecting green stamps or something. Every time Alice went shopping, you got stamps with your food. And in the end, they got enough stamps to buy an, an, an item. And the boys wanted a canoe and the girls wanted a sewing machine. And they ended up agreeing on a colour TV. But the problem was that they wanted to watch different things. So they needed a roster for TV viewing times. And I was hoping that the group of people that bought this car, like a timeshare, would have to set up a a roster of ownership. And it would have been great. Like Adam would have driven it during February and two weeks into March. And he'd have to drive it over to the next bloke's house full of petrol. And basically you got to drive it about, well, however many owners there are, divide that into 12 months of the year. And, yeah, it just would have been great to, come on, kids, jump in the car. We don't get it back till next February. Well, I'm told apparently uh, they have tried to uh, register it with Vic Roads, but Vic Roads won't come to the party. There was also a disturbing rumour that when they uh, paid, forked over the money and took possession of the vehicle, they were just going around sort of kicking the tyres and stuff, and the boot flew open and Angry Anderson jumped out of the boot, uh, which was a nasty surprise for anyone, I would have thought. Well, have you not heard about Angry Anderson? Oh, what's he done now? Well, apparently he's mellowed over the years and he's now just called Disgruntled Anderson. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. That's very good. Uh, no, it was, uh, it was a great story and uh, good on the boys for uh, uh, the important business of preserving important uh, football paraphernalia. No, I think a car's bigger than paraphernalia, isn't it? But uh, certainly an artefact that we'll be talking about for a long time yet. Uh, 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 given their, I'm not saying gullibility, but given their deep pockets for an interesting, if not trivial, purchase, they're the sort of blokes I reckon, <laughs> I reckon a good con man could sell them a few other bits of famous, iconic football memorabilia. Um, somebody bought the post that Lee Matthews knocked over, didn't they? Uh, Ron Barassi bought it famously and he had it in the Mountain View pub in Richmond. It's since been on-sold. I was just thinking, well, the same group of blokes. I've got uh, a 1984 grand final footy record. Got a few DVDs of the game. Uh, I may not get uh, such enthusiastic take-up on that one for obvious reasons, but the offer's there, boys. 
Uh, all right, there's enough news for this week. We have four massive finals to preview. Let's do it. On Footyology, previews with Punch. Finals football kicks off uh, Thursday evening at Adelaide Oval with the first qualifying final between Port Adelaide, who finished on top or on top all season against Geelong. The game time, 7.40pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Uh, Ins and outs, uh, official lineups have been announced for this game. Three changes made by Port Adelaide coming into the lineup. Cleary, Butters and Burton. They are at the expense of the omitted trio Woodcock, Linus and Bonner. The Cats have made two changes, both unforced, coming into the side Stanley and Atkins, out of the side Radaglia and, perhaps surprisingly or uh, interestingly, Jack Stephen. Uh, now, these sides obviously have played once this season. That was in round 12 and it produced an emphatic victory to the Geelong Football Club who fixed up the power. Final scores in that game were 14-7-91 to the power's miserable 4-7-31. A thumping 10-goal win. Tom Hawkins kicked six of the Cats. He was powerful indeed that evening. Gary Rowan, three. And uh, a dominant performance indeed for the Cats. They won't start favourites, so it is Port Adelaide starting favourite. How do you see this one panning out, Finey? Well, just on that game, uh, it was an interesting game, wasn't it? 14-7 to four goal seven. On that evening, the only Port Adelaide player to get 20 or more possessions was Travis Boak with 24, whereas Forge along, Blitzarves, Dangerfield, Duncan, Guthrie, Menegola and Stewart all went north of 20 possessions. So they really denied Port Adelaide getting their hands on the ball. That was Geelong's third biggest win of the season. Mm. Cracking result. Nevertheless, as you say, Port go into this game as favourites. Interesting that they've dropped Radagalia. We know in that game against Richmond where Geelong was well and truly beaten, it was Radagalia that gave them a glimmer of hope in the last quarter with two strong marks in the forward 50 and a couple of goals. But they have gone probably the way that they've structured up best throughout the season with Stanley in the ruck, Hawkins up forward, and basically a, a, a slightly smaller forward line. So interesting that they've gone that way. And also interesting, as you point out, that Jack Stephen just has never really been able to get much consistent football into him this year, fitness-wise, and is overlooked. Gee, 60-point win... Port Adelaide are favourites, and I'm tipping Port Adelaide. They're playing at Adelaide Oval. They've just been sort of overlooked, underappreciated a bit this season, myself included. Geelong's form heading into this game is not as strong as they were playing earlier on about a month ago, when you consider that Sydney almost upset the apple cart at the last minute of calling in that last game of the season, 
And I think that Port Adelaide's defence is really where their power is, pardon the pun. It's assured, it's miserly, and if it works as it has most of the year at Port Adelaide, at Adelaide Oval, I don't think Geelong can win, Rowan. Well, it can flip that for me because I reckon I have been a big supporter of Port throughout the year, but I am actually going for the Cats in this one because uh, I think the way they won that game in round 12 was very, very instructive. They dominated the midfield, but just as, if not more importantly, they dominated at either end. Now, we mentioned six goals to Hawkins, who towed up Tom Cleary, so he'll be a bit nervous coming back into that side after a week off. Uh, Gary Rowan proved very important. He bobbed up with three. They were explosive, the Cats, that night. Remember, they banged on seven goals in the last quarter. I think it was the second highest scoring quarter by any side this season at that stage. Um, So I think Port's defence is really going to have its work cut out. But also, equally, at the other end, uh, the power... It wasn't like they couldn't get the ball inside their 50. What they couldn't do was ever look like kicking a score. And key to that was the job that Harry Taylor did on Charlie Snickson. Uh, Snickson Charlie, <laughs> Charlie Dixon, who was literally not given a sniff. That's why I said Snickson. <laughs> Is that a Freudian slip or it's just me getting old? Unfortunately, um, Rowan, now every time I see Charlie Dixon, <laughs> I'm going to think of Charlie Snickson because that's a great name. Well, Charlie Snickson clearly <laughs> is his evil and more poorly performed twin. So they'll be hoping, the power will be hoping Snickson doesn't turn up and Dixon <laughs> does. Um, but basically, Port never looked like scoring. And I think uh, Geelong's defence, it probably, given how important it is, doesn't get talked about nearly enough. This is the best defence in the league by a mile, not only in terms of fewest points conceded, but just the way they team together. I know you've sung the praises of Tom Stewart week after week, the general role that he plays down there. Colin Jasny is a guy who is really underrated. Uh, we know how good Blitzarves is. I mean, they're just a fantastic combination. And um, Port's forward line has worked pretty well this season, but... Gee, Dixon is very much the focus of it. Yes, they've got some decent goal kickers too, and on that score, smaller goal kickers, and on that score, they'll be wrapped to get Butters back this year. Uh, obviously, everyone knows his Butters, and will be. Yeah, sorry, there's that South Park reference again. Um, so they'll be hoping to conjure plenty of goals from their smaller forwards as well. But oh, I don't know; it's just a little bit too Dixon reliant still. Uh, in in uh, in my opinion, and uh, I think the midfield too. Uh, this is where Port's experienced midfielders, uh, Boke, Wines, um, and Rockcliffe, who's been in good form, are going to be critical. They need to, at the very worst, break even with Geelong's midfield. Can they do it? Oh, I'm not sure they can. That's a pretty impressive roll call, the Cats' midfield. So, look, I think it'll be close. I think this will be an entertaining game. I think it uh, don't expect too many high scores. But uh, on that basis, too, I think uh, the Cats, the more defensive the game gets, the more suited it is in Geelong's direction. And that's why I'm going for the Cats to win it. Finey, just recap your tip. I'm going Port Adelaide. Do you feel with Geelong, you can tell pretty early in the match, whether their systems 
uh, succeeding or not? Uh, yes, I do. And I think we'll get a feel pretty early in the match whether it's going to be a low-scoring uh, Dower scrap or a more open affair. I think if it's a low-scoring Dower scrap, the Cats win. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be more confident uh, in what I'm tipping or less confident what I'm tipping by about uh, quarter time. I reckon we'll have a pretty yeah. good guide what is going to happen. All right, that is the first qualifying final. Uh, let's talk about the other one. Second qualifying final, Friday evening at the Gabba, 7.50pm. The combatants, Brisbane, which finished second on the ladder, Richmond, which finished third on the ladder, an exact carbon copy of last year when Brisbane also finished second, Richmond third. Uh, hopefully for the Lions, not a carbon copy of that game because it ended in a pretty convincing win to the side which would go on and win the premiership. But most of their meetings have ended in pretty convincing wins to the Tigers, including the last one, which was in round 10 of this season. Uh, Only difference about this version is it was played at Metricon Stadium rather than the Gabba, but it produced nonetheless a convincing 41-point win to Richmond, who won that game 12-10, 82 to Brisbane, a very and costly inaccurate 4-17-41. And that evening, Rewalt kicked four goals. Lynch kicked three goals. Jake Arts kicked two goals. And uh, the Tigers, a very convincing win to them. Uh, this is a game, perhaps uh, in terms of the stats surrounding it, obviously the most significant one is an incredible uh, run of dominance by the Tigers over the Lions. 15 consecutive wins over Brisbane, the Lions' last victory over Richmond, all the way back in May 2009. It is by some margin the uh, longest current winning streak in AFL football. Uh, Finey, will it be continued? Uh, fearful for Brisbane fans, and I've got to say, yes, it will be continued because Richmond are. And really, I'm not that concerned about what has happened in the past. History is history. It's the future that's a mystery, my friend. And the fact is that don't worry that there's been 15 consecutive losses by Brisbane. What really they need to contend with is the professionalism of the Tigers and how professional they are heading into the finals and, of course, during a final series. In other words... The Richmond team has gears and we're yet to see them go through all of them. And for Brisbane, that's a frightening prospect. I guess the one thing that Brisbane can optimistically point to is that the team that lost so convincingly to Richmond in the home and away game will not be the same team that takes the field against them in the finals. Ballenden, Payne, Skinner and Witherden all not going to play. And Ellis Yolman, even though he was in the team for the last home and away game, may well be on the outer as well. So we're talking about five changes. And in with that comes some cause for optimism. But Richmond have no fear playing at the Gabba. And remember that they didn't have Edwards, Bash or Hawley in that game either. So their side, even without Soldo and Tom Lynch, has 
some improvement from the team that defeated Brisbane so convincingly. Sorry, I can't see a turnaround. The ultra-professional Tigers, I think, have it over the Brisbane Lions. Well, I think one thing Brisbane will be encouraged by is the absence of Tom Lynch. I think that's pretty significant because uh, in that round 10 game, his tandem uh, with Jack Rewalt was uh, very effective indeed. So just to be able to concentrate most of their energies in a key forward sense on Rewalt, I think will really help. Uh, You wonder, and of course, we're still waiting on official teams. I wonder if... Uh, if Harris Andrews in a fitness sense is touch and go, whether Lynch's absence would persuade Brisbane to um, just give him another week to come up and make 100% sure. So I'll watch that one with interest. But like you say, in personnel terms, uh, Lynch is a big out for the Tigers, uh, but uh, the personnel returning looks pretty handy indeed. Prestia, Bolton, boy, that makes a big difference to the midfield. Look, another thing I think Brisbane can take heart from with the last two defeats in particular, so round 10 and last year's qualifying final, is that they were hardly short of scoring opportunities. I mean, they kicked 4-17 in the round 10 game, which is just a ridiculous scoreline. That's torching way too many opportunities. Uh, But similarly, in the qualifying final last year, I think it was eight goals, might have been 8-17. Uh, it's been woefully inaccurate. The thing that really took my eye in statistical terms was, you'll remember early in that qualifying final last year, they had chances to be a fair way in front early on before Richmond just rolled right over the top of them. But even given how that game panned out, they ended up in that game, the Lions, with 64 inside 50 injuries. That is a massive amount for a game that you end up losing by about eight goals. So they're certainly able to generate scoring opportunities and that will give them some hope. It's not like Richmond has successfully prevented them even getting the ball near goal. That will be something I think Chris Fagan can um, stress with his players and giving them a bit of confidence. Uh, But for them, a lot of it really just has to come down to conversion. And I was right about that scoreline, 8-17. So in the last two meetings... Brisbane have kicked a total of 12 goals, 34. You ain't going to win too many games with that sort of inaccuracy. But you see where I'm coming from on that one, Finey. They've got cause for optimism in that regard, at least. Yeah, you certainly pointed out that opportunities were created. It's whether or not they can succeed against that defence, which looks pretty rock solid. You've got Dylan Grimes. Noah Bolt has been fantastic this year. And we know that Vlosten... Uh, rewarded uh, through the All-Australian nomination and a great season. What what a breakout year for... God, his name escapes me. Liam Baker. Uh, So he's had a great year in the back half as well. Yeah, opportunity is one thing. Getting a result against that Richmond defence is a whole other thing, isn't it? So I'm sticking with the Tigers. Uh, and I am sticking with the Tigers too. They've been my premiership tip from pre-season. I'm certainly not about to jump off them now. And uh, I think they're going to make their path to that uh, third flag in four years uh, considerably easier by winning this game. So Richmond for both of us in that one. Let's move on to the third final. 
Saturday, two cutthroat elimination finals. The first played, but in name, the second elimination final is between St Kilda and the Western Bulldogs. It's at the Gabba. It is 4.40pm Eastern Standard Time. 2020 history between these two. Well, it feels like a long time ago they played. Uh, Indeed, it was only June, but uh, the game was so long ago, it was actually played in Melbourne at Marvel Stadium. Remember when they played football in Melbourne? I can barely remember it. But it produced a pretty emphatic win to the Saints by 39 points, 14-488, defeating a pretty lacklustre Western Bulldogs, seven goals, seven 49. That was a dominant performance. I think the Bulldogs, it's fair to say, are playing a fair bit better than they were at that point, Finey. Uh, how do you see this one? Yeah, well, they certainly <clears throat> can't afford to play like they did that afternoon. And they welcomed back Lockie Hunter from that lineup, of course. Lockie Hunter, who's playing good football now, had a slow start or a delayed start to the season because of a COVID related indiscretion. That afternoon, a couple of interesting facts. Jaron Geary actually played forward, but he played as a stopper on Jason Johannesson. Now, Geary only had three touches, but had a pretty good game. And Johannesson himself only had 14 possessions. So it was a pretty good result for Jaron Geary, who also hit the scoreboard. Now, uh, Billings, that was his best return for the season, kicked three goals. And Jack Steele, who had such a excellent season thereafter, went head-to-head with Bontempelli and Steele with 22 touches, Bontempelli 24, one goal to Steele. You'd have to give Steele the points. So you'd imagine that Steele to Bontempelli, Geary to Johannesson might be the way the Saints go in this all-important elimination final. We know that St Kilda are going to be without Josh Battle. That was a bit of intel Uh, slipped out by Bradley Hill on a radio interview. Uh, Probably let the cat out of the bag, but St Kilda were pretty quick to follow that up with confirmation that Battle has a foot or ankle injury and won't be playing in this game. But they will welcome back Zach Jones. So how does the game play out? As you say, a very different Western Bulldogs to meet St Kilda. They... And, of course, Bulldogs have their own issues. No doubt Norton and Wallace will play. Norton will play with some sort of Phantom of the Opera contraption around his injured cheekbone to offer some protection there. No reason to think that he shouldn't be or should be adversely affected. St Kilda will go with Dougal Howard, I think, on Norton and probably Carlisle on Josh Bruce. I imagine that's the way they're going to go. Look, I think St Kilda actually has the wood a little bit on the Bulldogs, having beaten them earlier this season. They beat them last year, a year in which the Doggies made the finals and St Kilda were pretty lacklustre. But I've got a factor that is, well, pretty surprising and I think plays heavily into St Kilda's hands. And amazingly, even though hub life has been part of football, for most of this season and most of this year has been played in the southeast of Queensland with Victorian teams playing their games at Metricon and the Gabba. Rowan, did you realise that Western Bulldogs haven't played at the Gabba this year? 
Uh, I thought they'd played the one game there against Brisbane. I thought they hadn't played. So even a single game, I thought they hadn't played actually at the Gabba, but even a single game leaves them a little bit underdone at the Gabba for a final against St Kilda, who's definitely played more games there. So maybe a slight, if not home ground advantage, then familiarity advantage for the Saints. Uh, yeah, I was going to touch on that, actually. Yeah, they did play um, at the Gabba, the Bulldogs. They played Brisbane there and lost uh, by 24 points in round 12. Um, that is, though, a factor. And I, one I noted myself, the Saints uh, are 3-3 three, three there. In fact, they've played there six times this year. Isn't that amazing? We're going to look back on these records in a few years' time and go, ah, oh, St Kilda. Played six times at the Gabba. How does that work? Uh, well, it did, and they're going 50-50, which is a bit better than 0-1, certainly. I think one thing, I'm I, in a totally aesthetic sense, I'm looking forward to this game, I think, the most of the four finals because I'm reasonably confident this one is going to be a bit more open and a bit higher scoring than arguably the other three. Uh, these are two sides very capable of generating and do generate plenty of scores from the back half. Um, the Saints have been really impressive. Some of those young runners like Hunter Clark and Nick Caulfield coming off half back. But I think the Bulldogs are definitely most dangerous when the likes of Johannes and uh, Caleb Bond, uh, even Hayden Crozier can generate plenty of run and gun off the half-back line. And I think they're playing pretty good football at the moment, the Dogs. They've won five of their last six. And the one defeat was only literally in the last couple of minutes against Geelong, who have been in very good form over the back half of the season. So I think their form is probably a bit better than the Saints at the moment. Um, there's some ifs and buts here. I think another issue perhaps for the Saints might be matching the Bulldogs' midfield. It's such a lengthy roll call of dependable ball winners, you know, McRae, Hunter, Liberatore, Bontempelli, Dunkley, Smith. Uh, gee, it's an impressive midfield contingent they've got. I reckon their form's good enough to worry a few sides. Um, I'm not sure they're going to go all the way, but I can see them getting as far as week two. So on that score... I am going for the Western Bulldogs to win this one. I'm sorry, Mark, as much as I'm enjoying the prospect of St Kilda back in the finals, I can't go past the Bulldogs for this one. So just uh, give us your tip again. No, I'm, sti I'm sticking with the Saints and I'm tipping St Kilda to beat the Doggies. All right, so we're split on that one. Uh, one final to go. Let's talk about that. And the last of week one's four finals over in Perth, 8.10pm, Saturday evening. And it's between those great two modern-day finals rivals in West Coast and Collingwood. Indeed, arguably the best finals rivalry of the AFL era. Haven't we seen some classics between these two, most notably the famous grand final from 2018, but we had a finals draw in 2007 decided by extra time. The Pies famously getting up there and another draw, which indeed was a draw back in 19, 
90 out of Waverley, bit of Peter Dacos magic and Peter Sumich missing the chance to win the game after the siren. They have played some great finals, these two. Their previous meeting this season certainly wasn't much of a contest, however, because it produced an emphatic victory to West Coast, which uh, kicked in the context of this season's shorter games. An incredible scoreline. 18 goals, 3, 111. 66-point victors over the Pies, just 6, 9, 45. Josh Kennedy ending that game with a 7-goal haul. Clearly, for me, West Coast's most dominant performance of the season. What uh, are the chances of a repeat, or are we going to see another finals classic this time, Finey? I'm not looking for a repeat. I don't think that they're going to whitewash the Magpies, but all signs point to a West Coast victory. And, of course, uh, we've now done the four games and given the scores. Isn't it amazing that we head into four finals with each team, each uh, all, all the teams having played each other once in this special season and all of the games being dead set thrashings in the context of Shorter quarters. And this one is the granddaddy of them all. I mean, 18 goals, three, seven goals straight to Kennedy. You can't imagine that to be uh, recreated. But Tim Kelly, whose season has had highs and lows, certainly I think he was at his very best against St Kilda in that really fantastic victory by the Eagles, also had a great game against Collingwood. So he'll go into this with some confidence, 29 possessions that game against the Magpies. And he was ably joined as usual by Gaff. Only Trelaw and Adams were able to get north of 20 possessions for the Magpies. Now, it's all set up really for the Eagles, isn't it? Home ground, good, strong home crowd as well. And Collingwood having to um, quarantine themselves in a hotel for a week, making it difficult to get out and stretch the legs and have some meaningful practice before this game. I think uh, the odds are well and truly stacked against the Magpies, and they knew that when they headed into that last game against Port Adelaide, that they needed to win to avoid the trip to Perth, and they were desperate to do so, but couldn't get over the line. So I've got no problems tipping the West Coast Eagles, though I would be shocked if we get another 66-point margin. Yeah, look, it's a uh, a massive factor, that uh, hotel quarantine, isn't it? Uh, obviously, <laughs> a factor we haven't seen come into finals before. But, uh, boy, it makes the logistically just makes the exercise so hard. Look, Collingwood has a an incredible record of backs-to-the-wall, on-the-road performances. But uh, the ante is, in that regard, has never been as high as it is in this one. Um yeah, look, you just you can't make a case for them. I think the only chance Collingwood have is to make this a tight, low-scoring scrap. They are very good defensively, uh, but what we saw happen in that previous meeting this season was that uh, the West Coast midfield was allowed to get off the chain, and that just made the job of curbing the tall forwards. And Oscar Allen bobbed up with three goals in that game as well. It just made it too difficult for Collingwood's relatively undersized defence, which is still undersized because obviously Jeremy Howe still not part of the equation and the amount of supply those forwards were getting, um, no defence 
however good and however well organised and however much support they're getting from the midfield can cope with that amount of entries. So Collingwood need to make this a scrap. If it's low scoring uh, coming into the last quarter, they might just be a chance. But I think there's a pretty good argument against that happening and it is player availability. Now, this is where the week off this year, it's ironic because the week off uh, didn't help the Eagles when they had to play the Bulldogs back in 2016. Boy, it's helped them this time, though, because uh, in terms of availability, you're going to have Jeremy McGovern back from a hamstring. Um, Kennedy will have had the time to recover from an ankle strain. Luke Shuey back from a hamstring. Also available, Jack Ridden, Lewis Jetta, Mark Hutchings. Um, so it's uh, basically the full complement. They've gone it is, from... Is Sheed available? Uh, yes, he is. No no question on Jack Sheed. Uh, Jack Sheed. Dom Sheed. How am I going with my names today? <laughs> um, so you've gone from having a really injury-afflicted lineup to basically the full complement. And given those availabilities, obviously Shuey first and foremost, but um, even Redden, uh, yeah, just numbers. I think the more numbers West Coast get around that midfield, the greater the chances of them uh, being able to at least split the midfield battles. And that, for me, means a win up forward and consequently a win on the scoreboard. I think West Coast are going to win this one, uh, not by 66 points, but I think they're pretty well placed to win it comfortably in the end. So just give us your tip again, Finey, on that one. Rowan, I am tipping West Coast, but as aesthetically reassuring as it is when West Coast fans read the team, the look of it will be fantastic. And I do still tip West Coast. Is there not a danger having so many players return to that team that haven't played a lot of football in the last month? Yeah, uh, no, it's a fair point. And it's a calculated gamble sides take going into finals. So, uh, look, no fear, all of those guys I mentioned playing, but... Uh, uh, McGovern, definitely. Shuey, definitely. And even those two. Uh, and I didn't mention Jamie Cripps, who returned from uh, having been out of the hub with his uh, partner giving birth. So even those three make uh, a huge difference to the strength of that lineup. Just can't go past the Eagles to win this one, particularly at home and particularly against an opponent that's been cooped up in a hotel for a week. So West Coast for both of us there. That is our finals previews. That is this episode of the podcast done and dusted. Uh, Finally, quick shout out to our wonderful sponsors, if you will. Also finalists, grand finalists, premiers in their own particular field, champions, the pair of them. Go to 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, if you are within the five-kilometre radius. If not, hopefully things change shortly to get a magnificent Andrews hamburger. That's your prize. And also, thank you, West Point Properties and Nick Bartell for their wonderful support. Back to you, Rocco. Thank you, sponsors. Uh, thank you, listeners. We appreciate your support. You can continue to support us right here where you're listening to this at the ACAST supporter page or through our Patreon page. Please head over there and uh, 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 any pledge you're able to make, uh, gratefully accepted, and you can become an official footyology patron. Jump on the website, some great reading on there this week, not just footy stuff. We've got plenty of stuff on movies, on music, on society, 
uh, on TV. It's all there. Some great reads this week. So jump on and have a look at footyology.com.au. And we will be back on Sunday evening to review what will have been a massive first week of finals. Hey, Rowan, uh, how about tonight? What about tonight? We'll be back tonight. <laughs> we will. Well, I was talking in terms of the podcast, but we will be on tonight too with Footyology Final Siren post-game to talk about what hopefully will be a very entertaining qualifying final between Port, Adelaide and Geelong. Till then, keep well and we'll see you later.